It is so good to see all of the excitement, the buzz around the fall kickoff and the different ministries to hear all that is going on, all that the Lord is doing through our different Bible studies and ministries. What a blessing. Well, with uh, the youth service last week and a young man bringing the word, I think Dan and I probably have to up our game a little bit. (laughs) Well, I see a number of new faces here this morning. And if it's your first time, you're coming at a good time because we're still near the very beginning of a new series in the book of first, second, books of first, second, and third John. This is only our third week in this series. And as we go, I'll catch you up a little bit. Uh, so that we fill in maybe a little bit of what you missed. But our series title is Absolute Certainty. And the key verse, which I hope most of you have already memorized, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? And so... Let's turn to the book of 1 John. It's almost at the end of the Bible. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. And I want to just recap a little bit of where we have been. Um, The so-called books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are actually letters, the kind of Christianese word, epistles. They're They're letters that are written to the churches by an eyewitness. And John makes a really strong point of this at the very outset. Um, If you look at the first four verses in chapter 1, he's going to emphasize, see, he was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, his miracles, including his resurrection and his ascension and his commission. And so take a look at the first four verses that John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So these original 12 apostles, they saw the things that happened. And every one of them was brutally tortured for their testimony. All but one of them was martyred, was put to death because of their testimony. And up until their dying day... They never, never backed off of this message. Many of you probably know the name Chuck Colson. He passed away a number of years back. But before he was a Christian, he was well known for his role in the Watergate scandal. In fact, he served as special counsel to President Nixon. And he later said this, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. 
That's a good word. These men were eyewitnesses. And not just 12. Hundreds. Thousands saw the miracles that Jesus did. And were witnesses to his resurrection. So John starts this letter off by establishing this fact. He's an eyewitness. And then he continues in verse 5. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We covered this last time, two weeks ago. And notice that he calls the content of his letter a message. Now, it's not something of his own making. What he's saying is, this isn't from me. I received this message and I'm passing it on to you. I'm simply the messenger. God is the source of the message. This comes directly from him. Now, I wanted to just touch on this point for a minute because I didn't two weeks ago. But if you've been here for any time, you know that on Sunday morning, we call the sermon the message. And if you go to our website, you can find audio video of past Sundays under a tab called messages. Now, why do we do that? Well, first, I'm not trying to make some false equivalence between the sermon and the inspired, inerrant Word of God. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is that we believe God works through the preparation and the prayer of our pastors. And he works through the delivery of the message so that what you receive is from the Lord. And personally, I don't, I'm not a good writer. I'm not going to you know, come up with my own stuff. My goal is to pour through scripture and pull out pieces of the word of God and put them together to help explain what it is that we're reading so that we can, we can understand what God has said to us and then make application of it. So whether we're teaching 1 John in the New Testament or Nehemiah in the Old Testament, my goal is to pull into that Everything from Genesis to Revelation. All of the word of God to help unpack it. So it's God's message, not mine. And so just maybe a for instance, back two weeks ago, we were in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. These are the verses in order that we looked at as we examined that text. Genesis, Exodus, Ezekiel, Revelation, Matthew, John, 2 Corinthians, Psalm, on and on and on and on. Genesis to Revelation. They were all in that message. And so what our goal is, is to bring you what's on God's heart. His word, not ours. Yes, we explain it. Like in Nehemiah, remember, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what had been written to them. That's our goal. So, if you get a pastor that reads a little portion of scripture and then fills the next 45 minutes with their own words and thoughts, then I would question where that message is coming from. So, John calls it a message. He says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We heard a lot about that this morning, didn't we? In our small groups. And the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. Now, 
I want to go back to one more thing from two weeks ago when we were talking about light. We saw that God uses this metaphor of light to describe his own nature. And we saw that light represents the purity and the righteousness of God. Darkness represents sin. But light represents God. And we saw that he didn't keep this light to himself. It radiates from him, both spiritually and physically. And so it gives revelation. His light is revelation. His light is direction. His light is salvation. We saw all these facets of light. And I made the point that God didn't just like look for something and go, oh yeah, that kind of describes me. I'll use that. No, he created the light with the very thought in mind that it would be a representation of his nature. And I, and I said, you know, there's probably aspects of light that we don't even understand yet that point us to something in God's nature. Well, one that I didn't include, I want to go back to and just touch base. If you're not a technical kind of person, then Forgive me for a minute while I get this out of my system. <laughs> you, can, you can tune back in in just a minute. But there's one thing that I didn't mention. And it's something called the wave-particle duality of light. What in the world is that? Well, it's a question of whether light is transmitted as a continuous wave or as a series of individual particles. And this question baffles scientists. In fact, they call it a paradox because sometimes it performs, it, it exhibits characteristics of a wave and other times particles. And they go, how could both be true at the same time? You can look it up online, the, the wave-particle duality, and you'll find a lot about it. It's for scientists to rethink a lot of what they thought they knew about particle physics. And so listen to how Albert Einstein described this. I love this quote because you'll hear something in it that kind of applies to, to the Lord. He says, it seems as though we must use sometimes one theory and sometimes the other. Well, at times we may use either. We're faced with a new kind of difficulty. We have two contradictory pictures of reality. Separately, the neither of them fully explains the phenomenon of light, but together they do. Does that make you think of something about the nature of God? How about the nature of the Godhead, the Trinity, that God can both be plural and singular, three persons, one God? What about the nature of Jesus Christ himself, fully God and fully man? You could, you could say this about Jesus that Sometimes it seems he's one and sometimes it seems he's the other. Neither one fully explain who he is, but together they do. Isn't that cool? I just thought that's amazing. And I'll bet there's more about light that we don't even understand yet that is, uh, gives us a little glimpse into the nature of God. So when people talk about spiritual things and go, that's not possible for him to be fully God and fully man. Is it possible for light to be a wave and a particle? It is. God made it that way. That's just fascinating to me. Okay, if you're not a techie, <laughs> tune back in and we'll keep going here. So God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We broke down that passage. And, and it says that um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. Now that's a lengthy intro. 
But that brings us to where we are this morning. And the message title is this. It's absolute certainty of sin and forgiveness. And we're going to look at 1 John 1, 8 through 2, 2. And two simple parts of the outline. The reality, which is sin. And it's in chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10. John didn't follow my outline when he penned this. And then the remedy, which is forgiveness. And it's in chapter 1, verse 9. And then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So it bounces around just a little bit. But I want to start by reading through the text. It spans two chapters, but it's only five verses. Okay? So here we go. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. This is God's message to us this morning. And I want to look first at the reality, which is sin. When was the last time you heard the word sin used anywhere outside of a church environment? When's the last time you heard it on the news, for instance? Have you ever heard a newscaster say, when that man drove that truck through that group of people in the parade, he committed a great sin? No. You just don't hear that kind of thing. According to experts who track the frequency with which words are used in the English language, sin is not in the top 100. It's not in the top 1,000. Sin is number 3,460. And they even break this down by how words are used in movies and TV. <laughs> if you want to go to movies and TV, it drops down to number, ranked number 3,783. You won't hear it very often. And it's usually not in a Christian context when you do. Now, by comparison, three of the most common four-letter words, I won't list them, but they're number 386, number 527, and number 605. They're more than 50 times more common than the use of the word sin. You're 50 times more likely to hear a four-letter word than the word sin. So what is, what is sin? Well, their literal, their literal translation is simply this. To miss the mark. Almost like an arrow aiming for a target and it misses the mark. If we're, if we're asked to give some examples of sin, you might think of the big things like murder, burglary, rape, adultery. Those might be the kind of things you think about, but it's not exclusively those things. Jerry Bridges wrote a book. We studied this in the men's ministry one time. It was called Respectable Sins. And he goes after the less obvious, uh, but more prevalent sins. Sins like unfaithfulness, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, 
envy, jealousy, worldliness. We're guilty of any of those things. See, anything that falls short of God's standard of righteousness is sin. Those respectable sins probably hit a lot closer to home, don't they? We might tend to accept them as just part of our human nature. No big deal, just who we are. But God says, no, those are also sin. So one category of sin is the things that we do. It's sometimes called things, uh, sins of commission, things that we actually do. But there's a whole other category, and that's things that we don't do. They can be sin too. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read you James chapter 4, verse 17. He says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Oh, yikes. This takes it to a whole other level, doesn't it? These are what are called sins of omission. The good things we should be doing and we don't do. We still miss the mark. It's still a sin. A Sunday school teacher asked her class, does anyone know what sins of omission is? And one little girl jumped right in. She said, aren't those the sins we should have committed but didn't? <laughs> uh, not quite. That's not a sin of omission. Did the good things we should have done but didn't. So why do we have such a tendency to sin? You feel it. I feel it. I've felt it today plenty of times already. Why do we have that tendency? Because we have a sin nature. That sin nature, ever since sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, that sin nature was passed down from person to person to person. Not just as they interact with their environment, but at the very moment of conception, Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yikes. That's natural sin. And so we're born sinners before we even do anything. We're sinners. Talk about a birth defect. And we're all born with it. We're S-I-N positive, you could say. We're filled with sin. We have original sin. And it results in this ongoing propensity to sin. Back in uh, 1926, the governor of Minnesota established the Minnesota Crime Commission to investigate crime and its underlying causes. And after much study, the, the commission concluded that the criminal tendencies were not the result of poverty, education, or environment. Here's what the report said. It said, every baby starts life as a little savage. Parents, <laughs> what do you think? Are they onto something here? It says, he is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these things and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, 
given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each one, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Can you imagine a government agency publishing a report like that today? God can't, but this is what they said. And it's true. We're born with the sin nature. Today they want to say, well, it's due to poverty. I Don't buy into that. One of the lowest periods of crime in our history was during the Great Depression when poverty was the highest. So that's a bunch of malarkey. But the problem is not our environment. It's within the heart. It's sin, and we're born with it. Now, just as a side note, why was it so important that Jesus was born of a virgin? Was it just to demonstrate another miracle? Not at all. It was so that the sin nature of Joseph would not be passed on to him. He was sinless. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not through a union, a sexual union of, of Mary and Joseph. He was virgin born. So, we each have a sin nature Sins of commission, sins of omission, and, and we even have this natural sin. And so that's why verse 8 can say categorically, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's just no way around it. We're just plain lying if we say or we think that we have no sin. In fact, saying that just piled another one right on the top of it. In fact... If we say that, we lie in three ways. We lie to others, verse 8. Anyone to whom we make this claim, we're lying to them. Not only that, verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. And then thirdly, we lie to God. And we lie about God. Because verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. Lie, lie, lie. We're lying to ourselves, to others, to God himself. Okay, so let's do a quick little lie detector test. Are you ready? If you're a sinner, raise your hand. Okay. Most of you, I think all of you passed. I hope so. Okay, good. Don't lie. Now, one of the more subtle ways that our society tries to deny sin is by relabeling it. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap too. Back in 1978, a world-renowned psychiatrist named Carl Menninger, he wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin?, and he predicted almost 50 years ago that the word sin would be replaced by words such as illness, disorder, syndrome, etc. And isn't that exactly what you see happening? A person's no longer a drunkard. They have the disease of alcoholism. A child's not disobedient. He has oppositional defiance disorder with ADHD. A man's not angry. He's just reliving the patterns of his childhood. A woman's not bitter and unforgiving. She's just depressed. A man's not a pedophile, but a minor attracted person. That is a real thing. If you haven't heard that term, it's about to become like LGBTQMAP. A minor attracted person. It's not his fault. 
Even the recent mass shootings that we've seen have been labeled as matters of mental illness. Here's the problem with this. Sin is no longer seen as an offense against God that requires forgiveness. No, it's not. Instead, it's a medical condition that requires treatment. Now the remedy is outside the scope of scripture and the responsibility of dealing with it is no longer between the Lord and the church. It's in the hands of the medical community. There's no more sin. Think about that. You don't need moral values. You need medication. You don't need to repent. You need to recover from an illness. What a clever scheme the enemy has going on. Amen? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there is never an underlying medical condition to some egregious act of violence that is sin. There can be. But what I'm saying is, over and over again, all classes of sin are being redefined as something other than sin. So let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. Whenever we sin, there's a debt that's created. Did you know that? Sin creates a debt. It's usually not a monetary debt, but it can be. If I steal from you, I've created a monetary debt. But whether I steal from you, or I lie to you, or I slander you, I've created a spiritual debt. A spiritual debt. See, I owe that person a debt for the sinful offense against them. And Jesus, he ties these two together. The idea of, of a spiritual debt from sin and a financial debt. In fact, he said, we should pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That's not talking about loan forgiveness. That's talking about forgiveness from sin. So, the reality is we're sinful. We're sinners. But what we want to look at next is the remedy. And that's forgiveness. And we'll see that as we continue here. Verse 9, first of all, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now we said that sin creates a debt. Forgiveness is a, is a voluntary agreement to relieve someone of that debt. It's voluntary because nobody deserves to be forgiven. If I sin against you, I don't deserve to be forgiven by you. You have to choose to do that. It's a voluntary act and it's an act of grace. I don't deserve it. The only thing that I would deserve is to either repay you for that debt or suffer the consequences of not doing so. That's all I deserve. Think about your mortgage. You can't just go down to the bank and say, I demand that you just erase this debt. I deserve it. They'll laugh at you. They'll laugh at you. Unless, of course, it's college debt. Now that's like a constitutional right or something. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> Nobody deserves forgiveness. It's a voluntary act. But this passage focuses not on forgiveness between people. The primary focus in this passage is forgiveness from God. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, that's a condition, 
then it says, he, meaning God, will forgive us our sins. Why do I have to confess my sin to God if it's you that I've sinned against? What does God have to do with that? Well, here's the reason. Because every sin is ultimately a sin against God. And Nathan, I'm keeping up with the PowerPoint. <laughs> I told you I got up my game here. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. Why? Because he's the lawgiver. It's his law that you violated, that I violated. And God's intended design was for you and I to be a perfect reflection of his righteousness. And so when we sin, we're not fulfilling the purpose for which he created us. We're breaking God's law. And so it's every sin is a sin against God. Remember when King David committed adultery? I mean, it was clearly a sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, who he put on the front lines of the battle and had killed. But yet listen to what David said in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Who's he talking about? God. Now, it's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he's saying, in comparison to what I did to you, God, I mean, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So yes, it's a sin against other people, but it's also a sin against God. What's the penalty for sin against God? Yeah, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So we have to confess our sin to one another, but we also have to confess our sin to God. So what does that look like anyway? Well, to confess literally means to say the same thing. We're in agreement with God about what we did. We're in agreement that it was wrong. There's no excuse. We shouldn't have done it. We harmed the other person. And we harmed God. So to say the same thing as God says, that's the definition of confessing. Are there things that we do or maybe we say, oh, well, it's okay. It's not that bad. And would God agree with us or would he say, no, no, that's, that's not okay. And if it's not okay, then we're not saying the same thing as God, are we? I know this happens in my life. Maybe I'm watching a movie and I think, well, this movie is okay because I'm not actually doing this. I'm just watching it from afar. And I'm denouncing their behavior as I watch it. And I'm enjoying it vicariously. Now, what would God say about that? Would he say, it's okay, Paul. You're denouncing it as you watch it. It's okay that you enjoy it. You're not really doing it. In fact, since you're watching it, you might feel like you don't then have to do it. So it's okay to watch it. Would God say that? No, I don't think he would. So I'm not saying the same thing as God. My thoughts are not in alignment with his. That's what I have to do. I got to change my mind. Isn't that the definition of repentance? We always hear turn around, but what it literally means, repentance means to change our mind. So that our thoughts and what we say are the same as God. We confess that. Because until we do, until we change the way we think about it, 
we haven't really confessed it at all. And our behavior will probably never change. So we got to think about these things we do. What does God think about it? See, it's more than just saying, yeah, I'm sorry, God, forgive me. No, we got to change how we think about it. So implied in this passage is that when we confess our sin, we must also ask for forgiveness. He says, it says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Forgiveness doesn't happen automatically. We need to ask for forgiveness. And I'm kind of a stickler on this point. Asking for forgiveness does not mean just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is just an expression of remorse or regret. I'm sorry. Maybe you've sinned against someone and later said, I'm sorry, and walked away. And then when they bring it up later, you go, I said I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but saying I'm sorry is not asking for forgiveness. Now, it can include the words I'm sorry, kind of the way we do it in our house, the way we raise our children. I'm sorry I lied to you. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry I hurt you. Will you forgive me? See, that's asking for forgiveness. When you ask for forgiveness, you put the ball in the other person's court. Now, they're required to respond. When you say, I'm sorry, and walk away, it's done. There's no forgiveness. I'm sorry. I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? Now that person has to respond to that, right? Yes, I forgive you. I relieve you of the debt. I'm erasing it. It's finished. And then we have to live out that attitude of forgiveness. So, once we say, yes, I forgive you, that transaction is complete. It's closed. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the organization JARS. It originally stood for the Jungle Aviation and Radio Service, and it was uh, the aviation arm of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And they serve the missionary community by flying into remote places, supporting them with, with uh, aircraft and radio and maintenance and all of that. And it was, it was founded all the way back in 1948. And for 25 years... They had pretty much a spotless record. There was never a fatal accident until April 7th, 1972. On that day, a twin-engine Piper Aztec, that's the plane you see in this picture in Papua New Guinea, it had the right engine catch fire. And the pilot called in a mayday, 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 fire in the starboard engine. And the pilot's name was Douglas Neil Hunt. And he said that they were going to, attempt a landing at a small airport called Nadzab. And the fire continued to burn, and he made an emergency descent, and he was less than a mile from the field when the heat of the flames caused the right wing to fail. And it folded up, and the airplane rolled over and went right into the ground. And as a result, seven people were killed, all serving in the mission field. Well, the Aztec had just rolled out of the Wycliffe maintenance facility for its 100-hour inspection. Every 100 hours, a commercial plane has to be inspected. And so it had just finished that inspection the day before, and the chief mechanic's name was Craig Nimmo. And he was stunned when he heard the news of the crash. And as he's 
thinking through this in his mind, reviewing each step he had performed in inspecting that right engine, he suddenly recoiled in horror. He remembered that he had been interrupted while reattaching a fuel line, and he never returned to finish the job. He tightened it by hand, but he never torqued the fuel line. And that faulty connection allowed raw fuel to spray out on the engine, and it caught fire while the Aztec was in flight. Now, the mechanic's guilt at being responsible for the death of seven of his companions crushed him. For days, he didn't know what to do. The other mechanics tried to help him, as did his family. But when the family of Doug Hunt, the pilot, when they were there, and they were at the airport about to depart to go home after this memorial service, he said to his widow, he said, and he's, he could hardly get the words out, he said, that hand there, he said, and he held out his quivering right hand, that hand there took Doug's life. And he was almost incoherent as he was shaking and sobbing his whole body. And Glennis Hunt, Doug's widow, reached out to take his hand with both of hers. And the hand, and it was the hand that had taken his husband's, her husband's life. And then on the other side, Ken, Doug's brother, put his arm around this mechanic. And this mechanic, Craig, later wrote, In the warmth of their forgiveness, the cloak of misery I clutched so tightly began to drop away. He said that was the most significant first step in the healing process. This family, these family members who lost their loved ones said, we forgive you. We release you of any debt. We don't hold you responsible. That's forgiveness. Now, was it just an accident? Was it a sin of omission? Did he not do the good thing? Go back and double check his work and make sure that the lives of those people were secure? I don't know, but this mechanic felt the need to ask for forgiveness, and it was very graciously extended to him. They released him from the debt. That's forgiveness. Think about the hurt, the things that we put the Lord through by our own sin, the debt that we've created, and the price that Christ paid for that. Far greater price was paid there. So chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as believers, God has given us all the resources we need to not sin. He has. He's given us a new heart. He's given us his word. He put his Holy Spirit within us. That's all we need to not sin. And many times, as believers, we don't sin. But we do still have a sin nature. And probably more times than we should, more times than we'd like, we give in to that sin nature and we sin. We know that we'll never be sinless until we're in the presence of the Lord. We won't be. But we do have everything we need. And that's why he says, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. So your translation might say we have an advocate with the Father. And this whole imagery is one of a courtroom. 
and of a defense attorney. So imagine that you're in a courtroom and you stand accused before God. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation says he accuses them before God day and night. So he lays out his charges page after page after page after page. This is what this guy did. This is what he did. This is what she did. She did on down the list. And our advocate, Jesus Christ, stands up and answers the charge. And he says, yes, your honor, he or she is completely guilty of all these things. And now he makes complete confession before you. The gavel slams and God the judge says, guilty as charged. His sentence shall be death. Satan loves what he's hearing here. It's going his way. But then... Our advocate steps down and approaches the bench and says, Dad, this is one of my, ch my brothers. This is your child. I paid the wrath and the penalty that this court requires. And so the gavel sounds again. Penalty paid. You're free to go. Case closed. That's our advocate. That's our defense. See, here's another thing that we have to know about forgiveness. You cannot just erase the debt. The debt of sin cannot be erased. It has to be paid. When you have a debt at the bank, if the bank wants to relieve you of that debt, they can't just erase it. They have to transfer funds into that account to offset the debt. Anything other would be wouldn't be just accounting. It would be cooking the books. And so in the same way, God can't just erase the debt of your sin. If you're not going to pay for it, somebody else has to pay for it. Because God is not a crooked accountant. He's just. He can't. He won't cook the books. Somebody has to pay for that sin. Who pays for it? Verse 1 says it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now get this, the only way he could pay the debt for your sin and my sin is for him to be sinless and then die anyway. See, if he had sin, original sin, sin of commission, sin of omission, and he died, he'd only be paying for his own sin. But he was sinless. And now he's qualified to pay the debt for our sin by his righteousness and so he transfers his righteousness into our account. It's like a, a bank transaction. And I'm not making this up. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. That's the sinless one, Jesus. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, okay, I'll take your sin and I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to credit it to your account. That's imputed righteousness. That doesn't mean you are righteous. God declares you righteous because of what Christ did. Or listen to it again in financial terms. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. He took his riches and transferred it into our account full of debt. He became poor so that we might become rich. God treated him the way we deserve 
so that he could treat us the way only Christ deserves. That's the marvel of this transaction of what Christ did for us. And when he was finished, when his work was done on the cross, remember his last words? Well, in Greek, it's tetelestai. It is finished. But you know the literal translation of that? Paid in full. Your debt has been paid in full. Verse 2 says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Now your translation might say he's the propitiation for our sins. I can hardly get my mind around that word. It's, it's actually the, the word hilasmos. And it's a tough word to translate. Propitiation, atoning sacrifice. But what it means is an acceptable sacrifice that brings atonement. It's something that appeases or satisfies. Did I... Get off on that slide. Oh, pride comes before the fall. <laughs> I said I was going to stay on track. Okay, Nathan. All right, there you go. Propitiation. That's not like some kind of hair treatment. <laughs> How would I know anything about that? So it is a, it is a, Something that appeases or satisfies. You know, we sing the song in Christ alone. And the lyric says, Till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. That's appeasing or satisfying the wrath of God. The Father took out his wrath upon Christ so that he wouldn't have to take it out on me and on you. That's what God did. Well, verse 2 ends by saying that he is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. In other words, his sacrifice was sufficient for every single person. Now, obviously, it's only those who believe who will be saved. But it was sufficient. Think about that. His sacrifice is sufficient for every single person here. It was enough to pay your debt in full. But you have to first believe. And do you believe? Have you admitted you're a sinner and asked God to forgive you? And if you have, then he has forgiven all of your sins. Here's a final little point that we want to just understand. At that moment where you said, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that Christ came and died and rose again to pay the price for my sin. I, I'm putting my faith in what you did and I'm asking you to forgive me. At that moment, our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Done. We're saved. We have a relationship with God that can never be taken away. Yet, the language of this passage is present ongoing. We're to continue confessing our sins. Why would we do that? Our sins have all been forgiven. My sins of tomorrow have been forgiven. Why should I confess them tomorrow? Well, we touched on this last time. Sin doesn't break our relationship with the Lord. We're still his child, but it breaks our fellowship. Our fellowship with the Lord will not be the same. We will not experience the same peace and joy in his presence. We won't experience the same blessing of the Lord. 
when we have that sin that stands between us. So we confess that. We agree with him. We ask him to forgiveness. And he promises to do it. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just and he will do that. Well, let's go to the wrap up. Our world does not like to talk about sin, but we're all sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice, whether those are sins of commission, things we do, or sins of omission, things we should do and don't. If there's one thing we can be absolutely certain of, that's our series, Absolute Certainty, it's that we are sinners. Amen? Sin creates a debt, and forgiveness is a voluntary agreement to release a person from that debt. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God because we break his moral law, the law that he has given us. And so we need to also confess our sins to God. What does that look like? Well, to confess means to say the same thing about. We need to see our actions as God sees them. How do we know how he sees them? We look in his word. We see what's right and wrong in his eyes. And we bring our own thoughts into agreement with his. We change our mind. We repent. Confession includes asking for forgiveness. It's not automatic. It's not I'm sorry. We have to ask for forgiveness. Believers have an advocate in Jesus Christ who speaks to the Father in our defense. Hallelujah. God didn't erase our sin. He paid for it. He paid for it with his precious blood. The debt of one who's been saved is paid in full, finished, to telestai. And if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be absolutely certain of this. And this is God's message to us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have to confess, God, that we are sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We're sinners by the things we do and the things we don't do. And God, you knew that we would be. This wasn't a surprise to you. Before the creation of the world, you laid out your plan. And God, when there was absolutely nothing lovely in us, no good thing, you came and you died for us. What amazing love, what amazing grace that would pay the penalty for our sin and that would offer us forgiveness. Would erase our debt. God, that good news, that gospel is beautiful beyond anything we can imagine. And it's who you are. God, we may not understand all the finer points of how that works. But God, we stand firmly on that, that we do know for certain that we are sinners. That Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again to forgive us our sins. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we worship you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.